I said, no, that's not going to work. I, uh, we are in a series on speaking to the hard questions of our faith, and we've been talking about one of our values as a, as a church, one of our um, vision, part of our vision as a church is to be equipped, each one of us, to, to have conversations about God in our community and in our world, and, and, uh, and but that's terrifying. And, uh, you know, we can be equipped with those basic core essentials of the gospel, the that, that God, in one first circle we've talked about, is, is God has a plan for us, a way things should be, but, but we know the brokenness of this world, and, and sin has brought this brokenness, and we're all struggling with ways to respond to this brokenness, but none of our ways seem to work ultimately, but Christ has provided a way. God has provided a way in Christ, in His redemption and forgiveness of sins. And, and that's, that's the gospel at its heart. Um, but we know that there's so many hard questions for our faith that we're liable to get as we come to, uh, to, into conversations. And so we've discussed some of those challenges. And, and one of those challenges is what, what about what Christians have done through the ages, all the injustices of, of Christians through the ages. And, and so we're going to look at a scripture uh, in James, in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 17, and look at that and, and consider how we might respond to that question of our faith. So, from James chapter 2, listen to the Word of God. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the, the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted of the law by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? That Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word, and it's a challenge to us. Guide us as we think upon it and seek to be people of your word. Guide, guide our thoughts, guide our hearts and lives as we consider your word. Guide my words, guide all of our minds and lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. One of the most significant reasons that people reject the Christian faith is their experience with Christians. And the world's experience of Christians through the centuries. Unfortunately, Christians have used their faith as an excuse to exert or maintain power over people, really, since the beginning. Uh, from the issues in the churches in Corinth and Galatia that Paul wrote to, to oppressive systems of government, to unjust wars and crusades, to justifying slavery and racism and misogyny and control of all sorts in, in both corporate ways and in personal relationships. These days, churches have been in the news with too many stories about money, sex, and power. And we don't have a good reputation to a great extent in the world. And, and this negative aspect of the world's experience of the church has been informed and, and given voice by views of Marx who just sees religion as the opiate of the masses. It just means it, it, it's appeasing those who don't have power not to rise up against those who do. And so when Christianity is, is presented to groups or individuals, they're already against it as they're defending themselves from Christians. And it's also hard to over overstate a more recent shift in our society, even in the last generation. And it's not just that the church is seen as, as prudish and judgmental. Many in our society have, have come to see the Christian church as the problem representing greed and manipulation and immorality, that that church is not just a hassle and a bore, even as it represents goodness. More and more so, it's seen as a negative force in society and in the world, and with views that we are immoral and that we hurt people. On, and on a personal level, I have met so many Christians and former Christians who have been burned in churches and Christian families that have hurt them in one fashion or another. And this sermon is not going to spend any time defending or explaining the actions of Christians through the centuries. I've come to learn, honestly, in personal experience that when people come to me with accusations or concerns about me, if they're coming to have a conversation, not just to hurt me, but to have a conversation, if I begin by defending myself or explaining myself, we begin the conversation on the defensive and with a clear statement on my part that I'm, I'm just not ready to listen to the charges or the hurt. 
I understand that in terms of basic human rights across race and gender, Christian theology, honestly, has been the primary source of the, of the working view of the Western society that every human life has immeasurable value. And in that regard, the, the criticisms of injustice in Christianity just don't land against the content of our theology, but they could easily land against the behavior of Christians. But starting with that defense is not typically going to lead into a conversation, but rather lead into a a defensive battle, when the reality is also Christians or people acting in the name of Christ have engaged in oppression of all sorts, including economic and political and cultural oppression of races and classes and genders, and especially in this passage, the poor. And this is about how we should respond to this form of refusal of the Christian faith. And three things I want us to see as we, as we meet this critique of Christianity. The first is perspective. The second is confession, and the third is love. First of all, perspective. This chapter begins with James addressing Christians who are favoring the rich and upper class over the poor. They are misbehaving and acting in a fashion that is not reflective of the gospel in them, the truth of God. And James explains when he says directly in verse 5, God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith. It's clear that he's, he's writing to a church that has both the rich and the poor in it. But economic status is not a measure of value in the eyes of God. And historically, most people becoming Christians in the early church were poor. And it hasn't really changed. The the greatest growth in in the church today is in parts of the world where the poverty is the greatest. The majority of people who claim to be Christian now live in the southern hemisphere, including and especially Africa and South America. And Asia, where there's great, all, all of them, where there's great poverty. And it turns out Marx was wrong. Rather than the gospel deflating the masses into being controlled by the rich and powerful, the gospel empowers those who the world has taught were worthless and of no value. The gospel gives people the inner dignity and sense of worth when they believe God loves them. And this belief strengthens those facing even the most dire of situations. And at the core of the gospel is that we are all equally sinners, equally in need, equally loved and valued by God. And it's been the strongest basis of of human rights and human value in the world. And And the poor have tended, frankly, to be more open to the gospel because finally it takes a poverty of spirit to hear the gospel and to be open to receiving its power. If you think, 
your will and your power and your wealth can take you wherever you need to go, can win you everything you need to have. There's no need for the free gift of God's grace. But the poor, the weak, the needy, when they hear the good news, they cry, hallelujah. And the gospel has always been welcomed by people who recognize need especially the poor, those who, whose society doesn't value. Remember Jesus saying, he did not come for the well, but for the sick. Those who recognize their need for salvation. So this doesn't answer the question about oppression by Christians through the ages, but it is the first step to understanding what Paul is addressing in this passage. Sometimes people are rejecting God and the faith of the church, especially when they're on the defensive and not at a place to recognize their need. They just reject the actual offer of God. But sometimes people are rejecting the church because of our sin. And that's, and that's happening here in this passage and happening too often in the church. But the first things First thing Christians will do when we have this perspective of the value of all people, when we are misbehaving and not representing Christ's love in the church, our first response should be to simply confess our sin, both corporate through the ages and today. And personally, Christians, we still sin. Even in the name of Christ, we sin. And, and the first sin we're likely to see is our partiality between people, including lifting ourselves up above others. And when we can see it in the light of Christ and we're genuine in our faith, we'll, we'll confess it and we'll stop living that way. And this, this is the context of James' famous point that faith without deeds is dead. It seems to contrast with Paul's emphasis that salvation comes through faith alone, not works. But there is no contradiction. Rather, these two points, they complement each other. As Martin Luther famously explained, Christians are saved by faith alone, but not by faith which is alone. Actions and good works showing no partiality is not a means of salvation, but it is a natural outcome of it, a sign of it. And faith in Christ is, is, is the means that truly empowers good deeds toward all and valuing of everyone the way we've been valued. Because in our faith, we fundamentally don't see ourselves as better than anyone else. Just because we know the grace of God and salvation of Jesus, even that is not a work of ours. God has helped us even to believe and our deepest value has been given to us by the love of God and will value others the same way. And remember the context of this most important sign, these deeds that are a sign of our faith 
as American Christians, we are so quickly assign our value to our works. And they become, we think, signs of faith that we, we would naturally look for. And 20, as 21st century Americans, we value productivity and achievement and success, even, even wealth. And these are the signs we look for of God's favor and, and grace working in us of God valuing us and loving us. And when we don't see those things, we think, we question our own faith. But that's not the works, that the signs of faith that Paul is talking about. He's talking about caring for the poor, the rejected, the outcast, the, the worthless of society. All through the Old Testament, they're often specified as the orphan and the widow. And those for whom your care is not going to provide you any benefit. The heart to do this only comes from care that you received in the same fashion. It's the gospel in you, the love of God working in your heart, the the God who loves you despite you being the poor, the enemy, and the rejected sinner of no value to him except for his love for you, a love for which he gave everything. Here's what the gospel looks like in you. Your love and care for those who have no worldly value to you, who are enemies, with whom you disagree that they belittle and shame you and and reject you and have nothing to offer you, your love and care for them, man, that's that's the bright light of the gospel in you. When we have that perspective on, on both God's grace to us and we carry that love to others without partiality, the first thing that we'll do is confess when people have a righteous grievance against us. Confession is a strange thing. It it, it stands out like a sore thumb in this world. This is not the way the world works, where we are always seeking to look better in each other's eyes, where it's all about maintaining power and position and value before others. When we are focused on creating value for ourselves, Confession costs too much. But when God values us, despite our sin, we are free to humbly confess. And it is a shocking thing to a world that doesn't otherwise see this kind of humility. Confession takes an inordinate amount of trust in forgiveness. Real confession can only come from an act of trust in the forgiving grace of an almighty God in Jesus Christ. It it takes a real understanding of the cross. But when confession comes, it, it tears down every barrier between us, between us and God, and every barrier between people. It's the opposite of partiality. Do you see how it is the first act of faith? We do it at the beginning of every service. Confession to God breaks down the barriers 
between us. And, and when the world comes identifying our sins, our, our partiality, our lack of love for some over others, the most disarming thing that we could do is to listen, is to mourn and confess, really confess. But we can't stop there. It has to be accompanied by real love. This is simply sharing the love that we've received. Fundamentally, every person is born with a need to be loved and to love. And, and we spend our early years figuring out how that's going to work for us. And, and we don't always do well with how we think we'll receive love or give it, and, or what love looks like when we can give it. And, and therapy is about this fundamentally, discussing our processes for the giving and receiving of love. And, and we end up thinking love only works in cliques or small groups, or it comes from tribalism or competition or even, in the worst cases, abuse. But, but when we meet the love that we're all born needing, the love of God and Jesus Christ, we see what that love looks like. It is Christ emptying himself of all the glory of God to become a man, even a man who dies on cross for those who put him there. That's when we see real love. People need love. We have received the love that people need in Jesus. So we have it to offer. Don't show favoritism to whom you're going to offer it. It's not a commodity which we bestow only upon those which we favor. We give it freely to everyone. We can be for everyone, even if they're against us, even if they disagree with us about fundamental things, even if they're sinner, sinners, so are we, and we are loved. We don't need to live on the defensive. We're not victims of the world's ire. When people call out our sin, be quick to confess. It's a good opportunity to tell them where the strength to confess comes from. You can defend the faith, the gospel, but sometimes that means de defending it from our own actions, our own partiality and sin. Again, confess. You'll know you're getting this right when there is really no partiality or fear in you. A story came to mind when I, when I came to this topic, and it has the mishmash of all these elements of showing no partiality, of, of confession, of the, of the visible love of Christ in Christians towards all. It's a story from a Christian author and millennial, Donald Miller, in his first and most popular memoir, Blue Like Jazz, and he tells the story of going to one of the most celebratedly pagan colleges in the country, not far from here, Reed College, outside of Portland. And during a few days break in the middle of the year, they have an unabashedly pagan festival on the campus that they call Ren Fair. And he and a Christian buddy were talking about what, what could they do during this festival that would represent their faith. And Miller, Miller offhandedly threw out that 
they should make a confessional. And he thought he was joking. But his buddy paused, got a lost stare in his face, and finally said, that's it. And they argued for a bit, but eventually they took the idea to a small group of Christ- the small group of Christians, all six of them on campus, and proposed it, and they were shocked and dubious. But then Miller's friend explains it. Miller writes, okay, you guys, Tony gathered everybody's attention. Here's the catch. He leaned in a little. We're not actually going to accept confessions. And we all looked at him in confusion. He continued, we're going to confess to them. We're going to confess that as followers of Jesus, we have not been very loving. We've been bitter. And for that, we're sorry. We will apologize for the crusades. We'll apologize for televangelists. We'll apologize for neglecting the poor and the lonely. We'll ask them to forgive us. And we'll tell them that in our selfishness, we have misrepresented Jesus on this campus. And we'll tell people who come into the booth that Jesus loves them. And so they built the booth. Well, that night, for a while, it looked like no one in the midst of all the, the craziness of this Ren Fair was going was gonna to come in, but Miller then tells what happened. I was going to tell Tony that I didn't want to do it when he opened the curtain and said that we had our first customer. What's up, man? Duder sat himself on a chair with a smile on his face, and he told me my pipe smelled good. Thanks, I said. I asked him his name, and he said his name was Jake. I shook his hand because I didn't know what to do, really. So what is this? What am I supposed to tell you all of the juicy gossip I did at Ren Fair, right? Jake said, no. Okay, then what? What's the game, he asked. Not really a game, more of a confession thing. You want me to confess my sins, right? No, that's not what we're doing. What's, what's the deal, man? What's with the monk outfit? Well, We are a a group of Christians here on campus, you know. I see. Strange place for Christians, but I'm listening. Thanks, I said. And he was patient and gracious. Anywhere, there's this group, just a few of us who were thinking about the way Christians have sort of wronged people over time, you know, the Crusades, all that stuff. Well, I doubt you were personally involved in any of that, man. No, I wasn't, I told him. But the thing is, we're We're followers of Jesus. We believe that He is God and all, and and He represented certain ideas that we have sort of not done a good job at representing. He's asked us to represent Him well, but it can be very hard. I see, Jake said. So this group of us on campus wanted to confess to you. You're confessing to me, Jake said with a laugh. Yeah, we're, we're confessing to you. I mean, I'm I'm confessing to you. You're serious. His laugh turned to something of a straight face. There's a lot. I'll keep it short, I started. Jesus said to feed the poor and heal the sick. I've never, very, I've never done very much about that. Jesus said to love those who persecute me. I, I tend to lash out, especially if I feel threatened, you know, if my ego gets threatened. Jesus did not mix his spirituality with politics. I grew up doing that. I got in the way of the central message of Christ. 
I know that was wrong, and I know that a lot of people will not listen to the words of Christ because people like me who know him carry our own agendas into the conversation rather than just relaying the message of Christ, the message Christ wanted to get across. There's a lot more, you know. It's all right, man, Jake said. Very tenderly, his eyes were starting to water. Well, I said, clearing my throat, I'm sorry for all that. I forgive you, Jake said, and he meant it. Thanks, I told him. He sat there and looked at the floor and then into the fire of a candle. It's really cool what you guys are doing, he said. A lot of people need to hear this. Have we hurt a lot of people, I asked him. You haven't hurt me. I just think it isn't very popular to be a Christian, you know, especially at a place like this. I don't, I don't think too many people have been hurt. Most people just have a strong reaction to what they see on television, all these well-dressed preachers. That's not the whole picture, I said. That's just television. I have friends who are giving their lives to feed the poor and defend the defenseless. They're doing it for Christ. You really believe in Jesus, don't you, he asked me. Yeah, yes, I think I do. Most often I do. I have doubts at times, but mostly I, I believe in him. It's like there's something in me that causes me to believe. I can't explain it. You said earlier there was a central message of Christ. I, I don't really want to become a Christian, you know, but what is that message? The message is that man sinned against God, and God gave the world over to man. And that if somebody wanted to be rescued out of that, if somebody, for instance, finds it all very empty, that Christ will rescue them if they want, that if they ask forgiveness for being part of, a of that rebellion, then God will forgive them. What's the deal with the cross, Jake asked. God says the wages of sin is death, I told him. And Jesus died so that none of us would have to. If we have faith in that, then we're Christians. This is why people wear crosses, he asked. I guess. I think it's sort of fashionable. Some people believe that if they have a cross around their neck or tattooed on them or something, it has some sort of mystical power. Do you believe that, Jake said? Asked. No, I answered. I told him that I thought mystical power came through faith in Jesus. What do you believe about God, I asked him. I don't know. I, I guess I didn't believe for a long time, you know, the science of it's so sketchy. I, I guess I believe in God, though. I believe somebody's responsible for all this, this world we live in. It's all very confusing. Jake, if you want to know God, you can. I'm just saying, if you ever want to call on Jesus, he'll be there. Thanks, man. I believe that you mean that. And his eyes were watering again. This is cool what you guys are doing, he repeated. I'm going to tell my friends about this. I didn't, I didn't know whether to thank him for that or not, I laughed. I just have to sit here and forget for, and, and confess all my junk. It goes on for a while, Miller does, talking about how he and his friends were changed that night. There's so many more people came that they could confess to. We don't have to bear the weight of all our sins, all the sins of Christians through the ages, 
or in our world today or even our own sin. Not because it's not our fault. Not because we can explain those actions and compare them to all the the good things that we've done. We don't bear the weight of sin because Jesus has forgiven us. And now we are free to die to ourselves and confess our sin before God and the world and seek afresh to live in the light of the gospel and the love of God before all. Let's pray. Lord, it's impossible to answer the question of the sin of Christians through the ages, of the partiality we've shown between people that goes back even to those first churches and before. Even the disciples fought over who was the greatest God. God, help us to be the least and to know that we have everything in you and to live as those who are freed by the light of the gospel to love, to love all and everybody. God, help us in those situations when people do in conversations, put the, the, the weight of the sin of the church through the ages upon us. Help us to know how to answer in that moment, whether it's a time to defend ourselves or to simply confess. But God, may we stand in the freedom of not needing to be defensive because we have everything we need in you, in your forgiveness and your grace and your love. And God, we thank you. Guide us in those discussions when they come. Guide us in the freedom, even in our own hearts, to find our forgiveness in you. Thank you for your word. Guide us in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.